This is the Brilliance Leadership Learning Podcast, sharing thought-provoking content and discussions to enhance your leadership development journey. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of new episodes. Here are your hosts, Chantal Nash and Gary Norton from the digital learning team at Crotonville, GE's Global Learning Institute. Today on the show, we are changing the game, or at least our guest is. Uh, we spoke with Lynn Lee, founder and CEO of Society9, a sports gear and lifestyle brand designing products to support and unleash the fight within every woman. They are producer of premium women's boxing gear and sportswear. So we talked with Lynn about her startup journey, the strength of women as leaders, being authentic, and how she keeps her customer first in everything she does. So here it is. Please excuse some of the bad audio connection we experienced toward the end and hope you enjoy. Thanks for having me today. I'm really excited to talk to the GE world uh, about what it means to run a women's boxing brand. (laughs) Absolutely. And for people who don't know, I am a huge fangirl of Society9 and Lynn's at this point. I, I think I just want to start this by getting a little more about your background as a person, you know, where you grew up, your history with how you kind of started running and fitness and, and what led you then to Society9. Sure. So um, again, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, so my background, I started on my quote-unquote entrepreneurial journey very young because I saw my parents um, learn what it means to be ramen profitable before ramen profitable was a sexy saying in Silicon Valley. Um, and we grew up with not a lot. My parents escaped the Vietnam War and I was born in the States, but I spoke only Vietnamese growing up. And so I was very much ingrained in the, in our culture and heritage, but I also had to really learn to adapt and create my own. And so growing up and seeing my parents work ethic, I always knew that I had something in me to want to lead. That was always my desire. And I really, I didn't discover entrepreneurship until about my sophomore or junior year in college because I got into this entrepreneurship honors program at my university. And that's really where I learned what the word startup even meant and where I really could push my desire to lead. Because, you know, being a manager in a company is one thing, but really creating something from scratch and leading the ship the entire way is a completely different ballgame. But, you know, every story with business always is tied to personal passion. So it doesn't really matter if I tell you, yeah, I've always loved business because really like all that doesn't matter and society and I wouldn't exist if it didn't start with passion. So professionally, I was working a full-time job, but I was training um, in different forms of mixed martial arts, but in particular, one type of martial art called Krav Maga, which is an Israeli hand-to-hand self-defense combat system that was developed for the Israeli Defense Forces. I got my brown belt in 2013, and I was also teaching kickboxing, but I had no martial arts background. I mean, I was a runner, and I don't say that discriminate. I'm not discriminating against runners, but I, you know, I, I wasn't really a team sport person, and I had never done martial arts, as I had said before, and then I went to Israel in 2010, where I met somebody in the IDF, and he was saying to me, you know, somebody your size should really learn Krav Maga, and I didn't really understand what that was, and then Googled it, found a gym in my hometown. I started training and, you know, I was really lucky because I had trainers who were some of the few black belts in the U.S. Our school in particular had like two or three black belts. So I felt very, very lucky. And so I decided to set that as my goal. And I got my brown belt, as I said, in 2013. And as I was teaching kickboxing, I was starting to hear more and more of my female students asking me, hey, 
I'm hurting my hands wearing these gloves. Do you have any idea where I can get good ones? And I was realizing more and more over time that I was recommending them uh, men's brands. And every time I recommended them men's brands, they were still telling me, hey, this doesn't feel good when I train in them. Is it, do they need to be broken in? Do they need a little bit more wear and tear before they really form? And then I was realizing, you know what, I think it's because they don't fit them. Um, and so I asked them, you know, how does it feel inside and stuff? And, and that's when I started hearing the same type of remarks. It's too big for me. I feel like my glove's going to fall off when I punch. Uh, my hand's floating in it. Uh, my wrist always hurts. Well, you know, it was the same variations of feedback that I kept hearing over and over again. And that's when I started realizing, like, not only was I seeing my class in my gym grow in female members, but I was seeing more and more female professional fighters get airtime, which is always a market signal. And then I started asking some of my other friends who train in other cities, like, hey, is there a lot of women showing up at your places? And every single one was like, oh, yeah, it's crazy how many more women are picking it up. So I was like, that's pretty cool. And so I wanted to create a glove line that could actually fit these women because I was wearing men's stuff, too. I'm 4'11", 115 pounds. My, right. my hands are the size of a third grader's. So <laughs> <laughs> women were wearing either like the men's crappy like size small gloves turned pink and they were marketed yeah. as women's gloves or they were wearing kids gloves, which kids gloves are not meant for high performance. They hardly protect anything. So I realized, I was like, you know, there's really an opportunity here to really address this change. And so I started asking in my network, like, hey, who's a designer? I, I, I got this idea. I got to like put it on paper because I'm not a designer, engineer, industrial, anything. I, I'm sure. more of a business brain. And so put a, put a team of two together. Um, so it's three of us. And we started hacking away at what it meant to develop a women's glove line. And that's what led to Society and I. That was the start of it. Any previous attempts at uh, startup? I've actually never had a startup before. This is my first time, but I was really lucky because one of my professional experiences was um, I was a fund associate for one of the few investment funds in Portland, Oregon that invest in early stage startups. So they invest primarily in technology startups, but they also invest in non-tech. And in that position, I was responsible for managing the needs of 50 plus portfolio companies. What was really nice about that experience was I got exposed to what it really means to be a startup founder. I also got exposed to what it really means to be a startup CEO because they typically are the ones who interface with investors. And I also got to see and hear anecdotally the wins and the challenges, the messes, uh, the things you have to clean up, a lot of the unsexy sides about being a CEO or startup founder. And so what my role really turned out to be, and I tell my old bosses who turned into my investors, um, they invested in society and I now, which is really humbling. But what I tell my old bosses now is like, I realized that my role really wasn't actually a fund associate. It was an entrepreneur in residence because I was, I already knew that I wanted to start my own company. I didn't know what it was going to be. And I was teaching kickboxing classes at that time when I was working at the fund. Mm -hmm. And that was when I realized like, I really want to work on this. And so when I left them, I actually left to work with a vendor who Nike was working with. And Nike became a client of mine as an account manager in that role. And so I was working on Society Nine nights and weekends while I was working a full-time job doing Nike retail environments. Um, and so it was a big-time commitment, and it was a huge schedule scheduling uh, juggle. But I I made a goal to myself that in two years, I wanted to 
have something, a proof of life for Society9. And that meant a prototype. That meant an outside investor who believed in what I was doing. And it wasn't just me sipping the Kool-Aid anymore. <laughs> and that was, that hit at like the year and a half mark of that job working with Nike as a client. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Tell us about the Kickstarter campaign and also kind of where you're at now. Yeah. So I guess I'll still con I'll continue my chronological story because it leads right into it. So I had given myself a year and a half to have a sign of life. And so the timeline of that was professionally, I had worked for Portland Seed Fund. Then I started getting ideas in my head about Society9 because in my classes, I was hearing what the, the women were saying. And then I landed this job um, with that vendor working with Nike. And so I told my bosses, hey, I got this idea, I need to see it through, but I also need to get another job in a larger sports brand <laughs> to just get more knowledge about what it takes to really create a, create a sport company and then create experiences around it. And so they're like, okay, like leave the nest. They were really sad, but they knew they're not, they weren't surprised when they hired me. They actually even said to me that they wouldn't be surprised if I started my own company one day. So the fact that it came you know, within yeah. two years of working for them, they're not really that yeah. surprised. So then I left and that's when I said to myself, okay, you got two years tops to work on Cyanide nights and weekends. If you don't have anything by then, just scrap it. So I took my salary and I basically paid my like rent, bills, student loans, all that stuff. And then everything else in my salary was siphoned into Society9. And in that time, as I said, year and a half goes by, I get my first prototype from the factory and I feel pretty good about it. It's not perfect, but it's, it's a physical representation of what I am pitching sure, yeah. and what, you know, so I get that August, 2014. So I get my prototype. And then on top of that, I, um, I applied to the startup competition that the city of Portland, uh, the economic development arm puts on a startup competition every year and they pick six companies that they give grants to. And we were chosen. So we got a $15,000 grant. So this all happened around like August, 2014. So I was like, okay, bye. <laughs> I said bye <laughs> to my employer and I was like, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so I leave and I'm like, Oh wow, okay. Like I this is real now. And I sold off all of my belongings and my apartment was literally my mattress, my clothes and my shoes, which I working with Nike, I have an obnoxious sneaker collection. Um and I remember I remember you said something too, how you kept like these certain pair of heels or something and then you ended up letting go of those. <laughs> I had these vintage, beautiful Chanel pumps. I know, uh, I know, ladies, you're just, I know the guy, the, the men on this podcast are probably like, what? But <laughs> I called them my boss lady's shoes. And uh, <laughs> I told myself, I was like, you're not selling those. You're not selling those. Like, those are a representation of like what you are, what you are all about, sister. <laughs> but I, I ended up selling them. I made pretty good money off of them, obviously. Uh, but uh, sold them uh, <laughs> to survive. So I sold those. And my apartment was literally, so my, my mattress, my shoes, my clothes, and then like my storage bin, I sold off my couch, my TV, everything. It was completely empty. And I had a storage bin of like kitchen stuff that I kept and some books and whatever. And I used that as my desk and I put my monitor on top of it. <laughs> and then I used the box for my laptop. So that was like my office was my living room floor and that. Nice. So I sold everything and I was yeah. okay. Fitness season is coming around the corner. I have a prototype. I have some money. It's not a boatload of money, but I have to make this happen. I don't have very much time. So 
you really learn quickly how much survival forces you to figure stuff out really fast. Like you don't have time to mess around. So I was like, okay, I have all these tools. So now what do I need to piece together? I needed to get content, photos, video, the marketing story behind it, like all those things. I basically started prepping around September, October of 2014 after I'd quit my job. And all that prep work led into us launching January, end of January, um, 2015. So we launched January, 2015, did a 30-day campaign um, trying to raise 50,000, which would fund our first production run. And we raised a little less than 60K. So we raised over our goal, which was, I was something I was really proud of because yeah. a lot of Kickstarter campaigns don't raise, they don't close their campaigns. So the fact that we even closed it was, was really good. And on top of that, most Kickstarter campaigns that successfully close also don't successfully fulfill all of their rewards. And I'm really proud to say that we are 100% fulfilled. We did that within less than a year. So, you know, I was really, I was really proud of that. But that was my, the Kickstarter campaign was a representation of a lot of things. It represented to anybody who questioned whether there was a market of women who cared about this sport, but also are passionate about representation. Like that's what, that's what I set out to prove. And we had over, we had 650 backers. So that's 650 people from all around the world. We had backers from Dubai to Singapore to Australia um, and then all over the country, of course. But this message rang true, not just domestically. So tell us a little bit about the, the name, the Society Nine name and the message behind it. So Society Nine, the name was inspired by this idea that, well, first it pays homage to Title Nine. So that's where the roots started for the name. We wanted to root our name in something that was historical and meaningful for women in sport. And Title Nine, although it meant equality for women uh, in education, what that really started, though, was equality for women in sport because it allowed women to participate in collegiate athletics, which led to a flood of professional athlete potential on the female side. And so our name pays homage to the fighters then. It pays homage to the fighters, the literal fighters like Ronda Rousey, Holly Holm, all these women in the UFC who are really paving the way of what it means to be that type of female athlete, a fighter. So it's paying homage to the fighters now, and it's it's speaking to what women will fight for in the future, which for anything. So that society part is talking about how we as a community are empowered to be able to lead that change. And that's what gets me excited every morning to get up is, you know, being able to encourage the fight within every woman. That's our company tagline, but it's the truth. You know, we we look at all these fighters in history and the fighters now, and we think about as ourselves, as women, we think about what is possible. And that's, as a brand, that's what we're saying is all these women have demonstrated how anything is possible. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter where you come from. It What matters is that you fight for anything. And I think that's a that's an emotional energy that I think every woman feels, regardless of whether they're trying to be Ronda Rousey or not, because historically and culturally and socially, you know, whether it's to be great mothers, great wives, great partners, great career women, but also the fittest women on earth, right? It's like we're expected to be all these things and we constantly are being told we're not good enough by different people, whether it's fitness supplement companies or magazines, especially mainstream magazines for women, they're terrible. And even other brands, which I'm not going to name, but there's other brands that, you know, tell you you're not good enough, whether it's lack of physical representation and lack of body diversity 
or it's a lack of celebrating the process of being an athlete. Like a lot of brands will just tell you, you need to win. There's a place for champions only. It's like, yeah. okay, hold on. Life happens too, you know? And I think the power behind Society Night as a community is all of us, all of our customers, us as a team, our, our message and what we represent, our ethos is we're here to tell you that you are good enough. And I think women don't hear that enough. So we want to let them know that as a community, we are here to support them in that. Yeah. And I do want to talk to you a little bit more about the emergence of your your respect the journey tagline. I don't know if that's the appropriate way to say it. Yeah. but And and I, so I'll, I'll go, we'll go into that in a minute. But I also just want to tell people the story of how I even found out about you guys, because I think it speaks a lot to that. Yes. Um, so I recently started kickboxing and do not first if you ever talk to Lynn do not tell her you're not a fighter she will come <laughs> back and correct you <laughs> um so I did start I told her when I first talked to her I was like I'm not actually like a fighter like technically speaking like I just do this kickboxing I'm not trained in Muay Thai or any Krav Maga or any of that although I do I, I now have a really heavy interest in it and I would love to get more trained in those but I started a kickboxing class and I really loved it but I same kind of thing I noticed that um, I wanted better gloves and I wanted cooler gloves and I don't like the pink stuff either. So I was Googling women's boxing gloves and I was seeing these pictures and they were none of them were great. And I also was noticing that anytime you would type in women's gloves, it really wasn't a women's glove. It was the same standard glove, which is more geared towards men, but with just a different design or a different size, maybe a smaller size. So I ended up stumbling upon a picture of the new uh, Bia gloves. And at first it was just like, you know, let me save these to Pinterest. But I also had that doubt in my mind that they didn't really exist. It's like sometimes there's a picture there and it's just a picture. There's no source as to where it comes from. Or maybe it was something that was released like 10 years ago and <laughs> it sold out or something. So I was super worried. Like I didn't have my hopes up at first, but then I clicked on it and it took me to the Society9 site. And not only did I realize that, hey, I can pre-order these, these aren't even re released like formally yet, but also I saw the whole messaging behind it, what Society9 meant, and just the value system behind it. And I think what, what everybody will hear as we continue this conversation is that it's not just a, a marketing thing. This is something that Society9 and Lynn is very serious about. And from that point on, I was like, I am doing everything I can <laughs> to support this brand and and all of the women behind it because I do feel that way at the end of the day I'm a very passionate person we do work hard for a lot of things I could go on forever um, but it's it's really amazing and I know a lot of other people will get value so tell us then more about some of just the learnings that you had mm -hmm. you know in terms of starting the business like trademarking and getting the lawyers for that oh, and yeah. So uh, talk to us a little bit about the value of those failures. I know you touched on it a little bit, but also then what you mean when you say, uh, you know, respecting the journey. Yeah. So I'll, I'll talk about the res respect the journey tagline that we use. We, we use as a hashtag on our Instagram. The reason why we talk about respecting the journey so much is to go back to what I was saying about the sports market, the, brand, the sports brand market. Everybody tells you you need to be a champion, but what they're missing is, and Ronda Rousey is actually a perfect representation of this, okay? So yeah. she was undefeated, undisputed, first women's champion ever in UFC, biggest selling fighter in UFC history, just, you know, accolade after accolade, won the best fighter or best female or best athlete, SB, a few, you know, she was the best 
type of ambassador for women in this sport. Then she loses on actually the top-selling UFC pay-per-view in history, the one where she fought Holly Holm in Australia. And that's, like, over UFC's 23-year history, mind you. So it's, like, you know, for, yeah. for someone like her, it was probably, like, it was the worst thing that could have possibly ever happened to her, right, for everything that she worked for. And I can't tell you how much I saw either on Facebook or just media. All of a sudden, like, people like TMZ Sports is covering Ronda Rousey. I mean, just people who never gave a about the UFC now all of a sudden cared but they cared only about Ronda Rousey and they specifically cared about oh look she there she is in the airport looking like a mess because she just lost it's like yeah I remember that yeah this is why we talk about respecting the journey nobody and I'm I have no clue what Ronda Rousey goes through so I am not in no way trying to equate that I understand but as women as athletes and I hope men can appreciate our philosophy on this too but what people don't realize is that there's no respect for the process. Okay, so she lost. Now, let's celebrate the fact that she's tasted victory and gold and just everything that you could possibly imagine being on the top of the world and then loses it all. Mm-hmm. And, and the worst part is she loses it all not because she's not a great athlete. She had a bad day, right? But nobody nobody deserves the treatment that she got from that. So when we say at Society 9 this idea of respecting the journey and encouraging women to just respect that part, it's our gentle reminder of saying to them that you are enough. And we always talk about what it means to be an underdog and a champion. Even with Ronda Rousey, she always was an underdog. The moment she opened her mouth in the UFC, the first fight, and she was talking trash, she was already an underdog because people mm-hmm. people wanted to have a reason to hate her, right? And the best yeah. reason is like, oh, she's she's not a you know representative of of women because she's brash and she's nasty and she picks she picks fights and she's a she's a child and all that stuff. And I'm like, okay, hold on, let's talk about the history of male athletes who've talked mad mad crap about their opponents and they don't. They hardly get a blink. Like, oh, it's just boys will be boys. Like, oh, they trash talk all the time. And then when women do it. It's like, oh, she's a, you know, a B-I-T-C-H. She is a, you know, and one, it's a double standard. And two, it, again, negates the process of what it takes to be that caliber of an athlete. So when we talk about our customers, which, Chantal, you're one of our customers, so I'm, like, very very proud of that. (laughs) But but when we think about our customers who are not the Ronda Rouseys, well, we... Which is definitely me. I'm not Ronda Rousey. We try to encourage them, though, is that, like, Ronda Rousey is you. If you talk to Ronda Rousey, I guarantee you, because I and I've heard anecdotally that she's a very, very nice person um, in in person. But I guarantee you, if you were to talk to her and say, "Hey, I'm really passionate about fighting," she's going to tell you, "Good for you. Stick with it." She's not going to tell you, "Well, how often do you train? How how much how much work are you actually putting in the gym? How many hours are you putting in training? I'm putting in more training than you." She's not going to say that. Nobody in this community would ever say that, and so. I think that's the unity piece that's so important to us. And we just want to encourage that because to your point about me scolding you about saying that you're not a fighter, (laughs) um, we want to encourage you to feel that way because you are, you are, you're showing up, whether it's work or as a partner or at the gym or whatever, you're showing up. And that's, that's what it means to respect the journey. So I, I don't know if I answered your question. I can get very, when I get into like philosophical belief, (laughs) 
about what it means to be like a woman through and through, not just on the feminine, yeah. soft, societal expectation side, but like what it really, like, I get going. So no, that's, that's awesome. It actually brings me into this part about your experience with the business side and those values coming together and your experience with those investors and how your startup journey isn't necessarily that Cinderella story and, and how you've kind of really found your voice and found um, confidence to stick to what you believe in. I just realized I remember the question that you asked me before that I totally did not answer because <laughs> you asked me about respect the journey and then I just went on and on about respecting the journey. Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. So yeah, yeah. I, w I was going to ask you that, but I, I'm a little scared to interrupt now. No. <laughs> oh my gosh. Please interrupt me because like I said, when I get into philosophical beliefs, I just get going. But okay, so I want to make sure I remember those. So first thing, learning about stuff like trademarking and attorneys and accountants and all that stuff. So I was really fortunate because I learned about the importance of, of representation like that, like lawyers and, and accountants and all that stuff very early on because of working for Portland Sea Fund. I do believe though that if you don't know something, just Google it. I mean, I can't tell, Google was my education. There's fortunately a lot of startup resources out there. You just have to find it. But in particular for me, stuff like trademarking or whatever, I just learned those things as I went along. Like when I launched on Kickstarter, I'll be honest, we were not protected. And that was dumb of me, but I just went because I didn't have time to think about yeah. it. And that's not an excuse. But as I was rolling along, I think that's one of the big learnings is like with Kickstarter, I thought only, okay, I need this much for production. But really, I needed a couple of grand for legal fees because I needed to trademark the name. I needed to protect our MMA glove design. I need, you know, I needed to do all these things. And I was like, shoot, I needed to tack like 20,000 on here just for legal, you know. Yeah. But neither here nor there. You just keep going, you know. Uh, and so to your point about trying to merge the ethos of what I get so passionate about, but how I apply that to myself professionally um, it's still hard. I think the reason why I have been able to keep going. So I, it's been officially two years since I quit my full-time job. Yeah. Yay. I'm going to applaud you. Uh, yeah. It's crazy that I've, I'll be honest. It's crazy that I've been able to last this long. I don't mean the business, but I just mean like me. So yeah, I, I think the, it's a new challenge every time I meet someone new, whether it's an investor or whatever, you know, because there's always going to be people who doubt or people who are skeptical. And I think where I've started to stop caring is one, paying customers always speaks louder than words. And two, I have been in this industry as a student, passionate student at that. Like I was training five or six days a week. So as a passionate student, as an instructor, now as a business owner who's catering to this market and I've had to research intimately. I mean, we've trained in over 70 gyms across the country at this point. Yeah. From the UFC gyms all the way to the like, you know, boxing boutiques with the beautiful towel service and what we've done the whole nine yards. We've been doing this for two years now. And so I know our customer very intimately and I know the different places in which she lives. And so Quite frankly, if I were to meet any investor or anybody in a networking event and they're questioning, like, really, is women's boxing a thing? I don't even care to defend anymore. I don't even waste the time. I just say, yeah. look it up. 
just Google it. Like, right. I'm not, I'm not going to waste time. And especially when it comes to investors, I think that was the hard thing. You know, it's like we're, we're in an early part of the market right now where it's growing big time. Boxing fitness is now reaching that mainstream crossover appeal where the accessibility has changed dramatically over the last two or three years. And part of it is perception. I mean, we honest, we as women yeah. honestly have people like Ronda Rousey and Holly Holm to thank for that. Talk a little bit, just give us the numbers really quick that you have for the market. So there's 17 and a half million women around the world who exercise in combat fitness. And 40% of that growth was within the last year. So okay. we're only, this, and this is just right now. I mean, if you think back to when yoga was still a very nascent activity, it wasn't even considered important to fitness. It was literally considered just an activity. Um, you started seeing hybrids of yoga. So, you know, you've had, you had different variations of yoga, then you started getting hybrids, and then you started getting yoga Pilates hybrids. And you start, you start seeing this multiplying effect of all these studios that do different things with yoga at, at its core. And that's what you're starting to see with boxing fitness. And it's only a matter of time before that becomes a normal Anyways, it's always been a normal activity, but I'm saying yeah. like going to your neighborhood and seeing like, oh yeah, there's a local boxing gym that I can go to, or at least reliably there's a bag that I can hit, right? Because yeah. that's yeah. the thing I've started seeing, like 24-hour fitness never usually has bags. Now my local 24-hour fitness has a bag. There's wow. a reason for that. And that's really exciting for us as a business. Um, we have an opportunity to be Switzerland in all of this and just say, mm -hmm. look, like we started this business focus, focusing on women first and we're not deviating from that. We've had met, we've had male trainers and customers, potential customers, I guess, ask us, are you thinking about doing a men's line? We're like, no, we're a women's brand. <laughs> and then they'll be like, well, my hands are too big for your gloves. And I'm like, tough luck. <laughs> 50 other brands, choose one of them. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's very true. Well, and it's crazy too, how you talk about that, even despite these numbers and, and even that, um, that business case for it, how you will get comments about why would women want to do it, do this? Tell us about that. If, if you can just tell us about some of the, the comments that you get and, and how you have to reposition that to people sometimes. Yeah, I, I would say like, the first year and a half was a struggle because I think I felt just, it wasn't that I was meek about defending the customer base or the market opportunity because I knew it was there. I think I was just meek in personality. Like I was new to the game, starting a company yeah. and I, yeah. you know, being a startup entrepreneur, you, you always feel to a degree like you're the beggar, not the chooser. So you make a lot of concessions and I think... I reached a tipping point and I think the tipping point honestly was after we had fulfilled our Kickstarter, we were selling really well every month. We were growing by you know two to three grand in revenue. And I it's it's weird. You don't really know how like the trigger just slips, but it does. But I had a particular meeting with a potential investor who said to me that he didn't understand why women would want to box still. And I've had this question asked to me millions of times before, like in mm. the past two years, I've had that question asked me millions of times, but typically I would go into like defending that. Well, you know, women are looking for um, self-empowerment. They're looking for self -empowerment. And for whatever reason, something mm. just like a trigger just flipped. And I gave zero Fs at that point. And I said to him, well, let me ask you something. Why would men play golf? And he just kind of laughed like, oh, haha, ha, that's a great joke. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. 
change the gender, change the sport. That's what you're asking me. And I was, I was, I wasn't pissed. Well, I was pissed mentally, but I was brash about it because I was like, that's literally what you were asking me. Would you ask me that if a guy was sitting in the seat? And like I said, I think it's a culmination of working with paying customers and serving them and serving a market and going into these gyms and pitching and, and, and talking to press who want to talk to us, you know, having all these different validation points already validate what I knew about the market. So for him to ask me that still, like, yeah, yeah, like, well, and I was going to say, like you said, and not only um, that he would say that despite the numbers that you've given, but also for for you, I I want to emphasize that this it wasn't like he was giving you five dollars. He was one. He the potential investment was going to be a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah, the potential. So, yeah, nothing was yeah. offered yet, but like the potential right. was there, and I had to pitch to the group. And you know, I and that's what that's the thing he said to me was that you know when you speak to the group, there's going to be some skepticism around that. And then he asked me that stupid question of like, why, you know, you're gonna have to explain why women would want to box. And that's when I said to him, look, like that, I, I, I basically said to him that like, this isn't gonna work because if I have to spend an hour defending why women would even want to do this, we're gonna spend less time talking about the market potential and how we grow and how we scale and how we create a big win for everybody. And that's not what I got into this for. And so what I feel very fortunate now is that all of our investors, our current investors, believe in our vision. They trust the process. They trust how we assess our customer and how we serve her. They understand that it's going to take time. And I'm not going to deviate from that. And so if any any new potential investors come our way, you know, we're still a startup. We're still lean and we're scrappy because we have to be and all that, you know, but I'm not just going to take dumb money. I'm not going to take yeah. money that's going to hold me up as somebody who's supposed to lead the team. I'm not going to put myself in a position where my mental capacity is crippled because I'm spending more energy answering people's doubts. Mm-hmm. We're not here to doubt. We're here to move. Mm-hmm. Because I won't waste your time either. Right. I'm not here to stroke your ego. So if right. you want to dangle a carrot in front of somebody else's face, that's fine. I don't need your carrot. I think part of that strength comes from the fact that I believe in my customers and my customers believe in me. And that's the thing. Every time we get a customer email, every time we get an Instagram comment or whatever, Facebook message, I start, I've always taken screenshots, but now I actively save a folder so that if anybody wastes my time, I literally send them the folder of screenshots and I say, read this. Like, yeah. let's stop talking. Read this. Make a decision. Yeah. Like, I'm done because yeah. it doesn't it doesn't make sense for us to labor this question of whether women would want to like believe in something like this. Yeah, we're a glove company, but we're more than that. And oftentimes, it starts with like the customer email order always starts with, I you know I've been wearing these gloves. They don't fit me. All of a sudden, I found this, and it's great. Um. And I can't tell you how awesome it is to see all these different women who do it all around the world, too. It makes me feel like I'm not alone. And it's because there's never been, like, a home for these women to belong to. And I think that's a really unique community that we've been able to galvanize under. We 
you know, going back to the investor point, it's like, I get that they're looking for returns and that's fine. If you're not willing to see the evangelism of these women who are demanding better, then let's talk some, let's talk another time. Like <laughs> that connection is very apparent. And that's why I'm appreciative that again, that, that you guys walk the talk. But I wanted to circle back on your point about the gym tours because you're getting closer to your customer. And I also want to point out that you do not go there to push the brand that you just go there for the customer. Yeah. I mean, so Megan, my director of sales and marketing, we, we show up at these gyms on an, we announce them on Instagram. So if anybody in our community sees yeah. that, but when we show up, it's not like we pop open our trunk and say, Hey, like, do you want to buy some gloves? I've got my square here. I'll, you know, swipe the card. <laughs> We show up and we operate like students because we're learning too. We're learning about these women in their natural environments, you know. So, yes, we may be observing uh, as we're training, but we just talk to them. I introduce myself as Lynn and I ask her how long she's been training for and I ask her why she's doing it. And that's it. And if the conversation leads to her asking me, so what's your deal, you know? Okay, yeah, I'll tell her something, but I never yeah. lead with, well, I founded this company called Society Nine. Here's our gloves. <laughs> you know, like I don't, yeah. I don't even broach that subject. It's been really impactful for us because I think it makes women feel genuinely connected, as I want them to feel. Like if you Instagram message us, Facebook message us, email us, it's Megan and I answering. You know, like yeah. we haven't gotten to that place where we are, you know, covered in customer support minions and all that stuff yet. But I'm proud of the fact that we're handwriting every single thank you note and we are packing every box because I want, I want women to really know that when we say we're there for them, like we are. And as a company continues to grow and even if Megan and I aren't the ones who are packing every box or whatever, you're still going to know that that person touching that box believes in the same ethos. So. Yeah, totally. And then that loyalty that you then gain from your customers it's a cycle right they then help support you just like my story but you've also got these um elements of society nine like the storytellers blog and um your ambassador programs where you're taking care of the customers because they can then help keep this movement really not just the brand or your company but the movement going mm -hmm. yeah our brand ambassadors are incredible you know they it's so funny. People ask us all the time, so are they sponsored athletes? It's like, no, we don't sponsor anybody. And that's actually a firm commitment that Megan and I are making. We don't sponsor anybody. And the reason why is, one, we don't believe anyone should deserve preferential treatment. Because, again, it's like a Ronda Rousey is no different than the amateur fighter who's also busting her butt in the gym to train for her next fight, you know? Um, so our brand ambassadors are athletes, they're coaches, they're instructors, trainers, they're community influencers you know i think some brands think like oh the more followers the better and yes that's very important it's you know that's a component of it but we believe more in having women represent us who already naturally operate on the same ethos as we do whether it's they host women's self-defense seminars or they do a bunch of charity work on the side when they train or or whatever but it's like they have influence in their communities and they all apply that's the thing all of our brand ambassadors apply and that one allows for a very diplomatic process and two it really allows us to be honest about how we want to be represented as a brand and as a community i keep talking about community it's like okay well who's in it who's leading our community we we want to change the tide on 
preferential treatment as well as sponsorships, not because I don't think athletes deserve it. I mean, I could get into a whole conversation about, you know, why athletes yeah. do deserve um, to be supported in that way, because I know it's very important from an economic standpoint. But when I talk specifically about how we as a sports brand endorse, quote unquote, athletes, it's really important that we we encourage them too to look at this as a community. That for me is why the brand ambassador program is definitely near and dear to us because they're, I don't want to call them foot soldiers because they're not out there selling out of their trunk either. They're, they're yes, they're training in our gear, but they literally are just doing exactly what they are already doing. They are wearing right. our gear because they believe in it and they think it's great quality, but they're just doing what they're already doing. And that's, that's where that's, that's the more important thing to us. Yeah. Yeah. What I wanted to ask was, in, in a startup and now a, a two-year-old startup, um, can you tell us about how you either have empowered your employees or how they just assumed uh, the power of being part of this startup to be able to work with speed and flexibility, either in bringing in new products or adding a redesign to an existing product and just go ahead with experimentation and, and letting people run with it? Sure. So it's really important, I think, and I learned this because I saw a lot of founders, especially CEOs in particular, who uh, they operate like they knew everything. So they were uncoachable. They were not mm. only uncoachable, uncoachable, but they were also non-collaborative. And I've seen that be a detriment in various ways. And I, I know that that's something that's easy to fall into. And so I wanted to be very mindful of that. I think what I'm very blessed with is my team, while small, there's five of us, but everybody believes in the same vision. They believe in the same pace that we're going after it and how calculated we're going after it. So that's sort of like their trust in me as a leader, right? Like when they say, hey, I got this idea and I want to do this. And if I say, that sounds great. I don't think it's the right time right now. Let's reassess in six months. They trust that. But in turn, what I've done to gain that respect is they know that on the day to day, on the day to day, I enable them and trust them to execute freely without my involvement. So I think a lot of leaders and managers fall into a trap of micromanagement because they're scared. They've got budgets they have to manage. And, and I'm in the same way, right? Like, I mean, I oversee all the budgets. There's no departments. There's me. Um, right. But, you know, I oversee all the spending and I have to make very calculated decisions about why we spend three grand here, two grand there, whatever, you know. And I have to be very nimble about everything we develop or everything that we do on the marketing side or whatever. But I trust my team and I empower my team to come up with the ideas to justify their assumptions. And that's really all I ask. But I'm not going to, like, breathe down their throat and say, hey, has this gotten done yet? Has this gotten done yet? Why hasn't this gotten done yet? They understand their responsibilities. They know what needs to get done. There's no need to be micromanaging on the day-to-day. -day. And I think that's where there's a very strong mutual trust on the team. I, I really think that the reason why we've been able to be lean is I don't waste time asking why. Um, I do ask why, but I don't, I, don't, I don't labor it. Because I trust them. I brought them onto the team because they have a very unique perspective and something unique to offer um, within their realm of expertise. And I have to let them run with that. And I think you need to, it's your job as a leader and a manager to make everyone 
to encourage everyone to feel like they have an invested stake as a team. If you are micromanaging and if you are not entrusting your team with, with that investment, then they're not going to care if you get thrown under the bus by your larger manager because the budget was burned or whatever, or a project went awry. At the same token, if you okay a project and you give your employee room to run or whatever, and let's say it does go by the wayside, part of that exchange of asking them to propose why they would want to execute this and what the potential return is and all that stuff is your willingness as a manager to go to bat for them. So if your larger manager says, why did this go wrong? You can say to them firmly, well, I approved this and here's why. It didn't work out for the following reasons, but this is the information we had at the time and we felt like it was pretty good. And that's the thing when, and whenever I think about like the value of failures, to cultivate a strong company culture, you have to remember that it's still people. And if you don't enable those people to feel like they are not only um, valued for their perspective, but also valued for their calculated risk taking, they're not going to feel like there's room to grow, but they're also not going to feel like you too respect or are willing to bat for them. In my opinion, that's your job. It's your job to defend your team. And that's part of being a leader. It's not about you. Your salary might seem like that or your years of experience, but it's not about you. Even in this role now, sometimes my one of my designers like likes to call me chief or boss like as like a nickname or whatever. And now mm-hmm. I saw him shut up. <laughs> yeah. Don't call me that. And he's like, what? That's what you are. I'm like, I'm not your boss. That sounds terrible. Don't, don't say that. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, it really does sound terrible sometimes how we position things. But I also, I just want to ask now, given all of this, what are your plans for future? I know you guys get a lot of questions about if you're going to expand your line and do you have plans to, to offer more products in the future or what, what, where do you see it going? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the, the path that we've set out in terms of product launches and whatnot, we're still going to operate lean, at least in the first two years. Like we're finishing up our first year now, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we aren't going to come out with like a 50 piece line all of a sudden tomorrow. Like that type of aggressive growth might come, you know, in three, four years, maybe five years. But right now, we really care about listening to our customers and creating what they are asking for. And we we assess the business case for creating new products, and we also assess the timeline in which it takes. And if the timeline doesn't fit the demand or the seasonality, like, you know, New Year's resolution season or whatever, you know, we reassess and we tool, we shuffle. But at the end of the day, you know, right now, we just care about listening to our customers, and we want our customers to feel like they're a part of our team, too. So yeah, I mean, I, what's next for us really is holiday and Q1. Really excited. We're launching a couple of new products, um, which you'll start seeing probably in October. We'll start doing like a soft launch of just showing what's coming up. But otherwise, you know, we, I think we're, we have an exciting year next year. You know, I am fundraising right now as well. And that takes up a lot of my time. That fundraising effort is so that we can ensure that next year we can continue to scale up. That's the exciting thing about being a startup. Things are always changing and it's your job to adapt. It's, you know, I think training in boxing and mixed martial arts has been a good thing for me professionally because it's allowed me to approach every challenge like an endurance test. So I'm so glad you said that because I had this quote um, that I specifically saved for this and then I almost was going to forget to say it, but now you (laughs) reminded me. So in, uh, I think it was the Forbes article, it said, 
you're sparring for an hour and you feel like your nose is going to get broken. And if that is the worst feeling you're going to have, you can face that challenge. <laughs> and it's really funny. I'll tell you why that's really funny, especially to me. Because when I started kickboxing and I realized how much I liked it, I was like, man, I would almost actually start training and being a fighter if I wasn't afraid to get punched in the face <laughs> and like break my nose or something. So when I saw that you said that, I was like, oh, man, I really need to like just do this thing. Like, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, the, the, I guess basically what I was trying to say is I was trying to speak from my own experience, which was I did get my nose broken. Like, but it was fine. I shoved some cotton balls up my nose. And I, took, <laughs> I took a sip of water, had, you know, a banana and I got back in there and I was fine. And I think that's why, like, I look at this, even like all the challenges, you know, I'm not one to wallow. I'll wallow for maybe a day or two, but it's like, it's a very easy choice. Do you want to quit or not? Because the more you labor the the process of groveling, the sooner that you're going to have to quit because you're going to run out of money and you're going to run out of time. So um, I it's it's I make it sound very easy, but every challenge, every time we run into a fire, every time we run into a challenge, I go through the same mantra. Do you want to quit or not? People will understand. You know, I had to get over that hurdle of like, oh, I'm going to lose the respect of all these people, all these people who believe in me and all that stuff. If they all put themselves in my shoes too, I think that they would understand. Well, you know, I I know that I'm going to continue following you guys, and I hope that we reconnect in the future, obviously, and can see how how things are going for you. Um, I'm really excited for you. It's just it's awesome, and I thank you that you've taken the time to talk to us. And I don't know, Gary, if you have anything else you want to add. I don't, but I, I just want to say thank you very much for um, for joining us in the podcast, and uh, look forward to maybe speaking to you in the future. Yeah, thank you guys yeah. so much for, uh, well, Chantal, thank you for being a customer. That's number one thing. Keep going. And, um, you know, thanks for having me because I, uh, I definitely hope that, you know, the little tidbits I gave were helpful, helpful bits of knowledge for people. Yeah, well, and speaking of tidbits, do you happen to know of any, if I want to start getting into Muay Thai, is there anything that you would recommend that I go to? Oh, you know what? We actually have um, several brand ambassadors in Texas. Let me reach out. Oh, okay. See? This is the beauty of community. Awesome. Yeah. Yes. I want to start doing it. I want to be a badass too, more than I am now. <laughs> not that I'm not now, right? <laughs> <laughs> keep, well, hey, keep going. And plus, you're going to look great doing them. <laughs> I know. With my gloves, I, I really do love them, I have to say. <laughs> so then for everybody else, uh, you can check out Society9 at society9.com. Again, they also have, uh, in addition to their products there, they have the Storytellers blog, so you can learn about a lot of these other women that are supporting this product and this movement. You can also follow them on Twitter at Society9Inc, I-N-C, on Instagram at Society9, and then you can also subscribe to their own podcast. You guys have your own podcast, too. I think it's we called... Do. It's just Society9. Society yeah, search it on Society. iTunes. Yeah, go to iTunes and go to podcasts and just search Society9. Nine is spelled out, N-I-N-E. Yeah, that great point. And <laughs> all of these, in all of these, Twitter, Instagram, Society Nine is spelled out as a word. Well, awesome! Thank you so much, guys, and thank you for reaching out and asking me to be part of this. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Brilliance Leadership Learning through iTunes, and you can also follow us on SoundCloud. <laughs>